This is God's Word as we've read it this morning from Isaiah 9. We're keying on these four Jesus titles in verse 6, these names we often think about around Christmas time. We took the first two last Sunday after putting Isaiah 9 in its historical context. We took Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, and I tried to show you how Jesus is both. Today we take Eternal Father, either Everlasting or Eternal Everlasting is a little bit of an unusual word for us in English. We don't use it a lot. It's more of an old English kind of word or, or everlasting. Uh, Willy Wonka's everlasting gobstopper. I mean, you think of stuff like that, and I don't want those associations for us. So let's go with eternal. Eternal is a word that still retains its, uh, its godness uh, as opposed to everlasting. Eternal Father and Prince of Peace, looking again at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting slash Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now the first question many have, we're going to look at Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. How can the Son be the Father? It's immediately for a Trinitarian context, uh, people wonder this. How is it Jesus can be called eternal Father? Because when we think of God, we think of the Father as the Father, and we think of the Son as the Son, and the Spirit as the Spirit. But the reason eternal Father applies to Jesus is eternal Father is in relation to time. Literally, everlasting Father is the Father of eternity. And this is language we use. If we call somebody the father of something, the father of modern medicine, the father of basketball, uh, the father of personal computing, Jesus called Satan the father of lies. When we call someone the father of something, it means that person is responsible for that reality. It originated with them. And we apply the father of something personally, whereas when we talk about the mother of something, we usually apply that to an event. Not sure why that is, why it should be the mother of all battles or the mother of all baby showers. Heaven forbid it's the mother of all battling baby showers. You would not want that. But it's more tied to an event. We talk about the father of something. We mean it personally. Jesus is the Father of eternity. This terminology is pinpointing His entire continuum. That's a purposefully paradoxical statement. Time, all of time, from the moment it begins to when it's perfected in eternity, time is subject to Him as His creation. And so eternal Father, the reason Jesus is called this, Think about John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Think of Colossians chapter 1, it presents Jesus as the name of the Creator God. The personal name of the Creator God is Jesus. Time is subject to Jesus. Eternal Father is in relation to time. Now, Prince of Peace, when we come to that, is in relation to evil. Time and evil, why is this significant? The two greatest problems we face as human beings are time and evil because death has something to do with both. And death really is the greatest problem we have. Death inhabits evil and it hangs over time. 
I said last week that death is our number one problem. This week, with these two names, Eternal Father and Prince of Peace, we can get a little more specific how so. The reason death is a problem for us is because death waits for us at the end of our time, and death is the highest card evil can play. Now, Merry Christmas. I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas talking about death. But I said to you last week, in consideration of the second Jesus title here, Mighty God, you see it there again in verse 6, we talked about it last week. Last week I said, if God cannot do anything about death, the number one problem for human beings, the number one problem for creation, if He can't do anything about death, then He's not mighty. And that would be itself an immense problem if it were a problem but it's not a problem for God. And this side of the cross, we know why not. The resurrection is good tidings of great joy. Death is defeated by Jesus' life and only by Jesus' life. What these titles, as you look at them there in verse 6, what they communicate to us is that our biggest problems are not problems for God. Our biggest problems are not problems for God. That's what these titles are saying. Death is not a problem for God because time and evil are not problems for God. So eternal Father is about how this Son, Isaiah previewed here, God's Son in human flesh from David's line, how He relates to time. He is over time, though He would also enter time and in a way be subject to time in that death would also hang over his time on earth. He would be born in time, he would live in time, he would rise in time, and he will perfect time at his return. Time is not a problem for him. For us it is in that we have limited time. We have to manage time so that we don't squander it. We have to endure time sometimes. We don't always enjoy time. And even when we are enjoying the time that we have with someone or something, we know that time comes to an end. Sometimes there's not enough time to do everything we want or need to do. Sometimes there's too much time and we're idle. Too little or too much time depends on our circumstances. It, de it depends on our ethics. But time exposes our limitations, it does. And not just that, time is also the reason for the ache in our longings, for those we miss, those we've lost, longing for more time with them. But let's just take one aspect and that whole paragraph of thought I, I just gave you, the aspect of time being enjoyed, when we enjoy time but realize that what we're enjoying has a shelf life. This won't last. You have a show you like. You get through all the episodes and what do you do? You Google the name of the show and Google finishes your entry with whatever the next season would be. Because you and thousands if not millions of others have um, enjoyed that show and you've come to the end and you're hopeful there's going to be another season. Oh, please let there be another season. 
Because you miss those characters now and, and, and you, and you, you want to be there, uh, whether the show transports you back in history or it, it keeps you in the present with somebody or it takes you into the future. It, it's, it, there's an ache even in the things like that that we've enjoyed because it ends. It's the ache of, I want more. I, I don't want to leave this yet. Time takes from us even as it gives to us. This is how time works. It takes from us even as it gives to us. One of my favorite songs of all time, that means a song I can listen to over and over again and not get tired of it, is by Hootie and the Blowfish, Time. Uh, by my estimation, one of the finest rock albums ever made. 1995 Cracked Review by Hootie and the Blowfish. I love every song on that album. And yes, I am aware they're getting back together to save you coming up and telling me afterwards, those of you who want me to know that information. They're going to go on tour. And Lynn, we're going to go. <laughs> time. That song, Time, it, it, by... by that group, it, it's about feeling punished by time. That, I, I like the song not just because of its riffs and all, but I, I like the song because it, it conveys this reality that time takes from us even as it gives to us. It's profound. Hootie and the Blowfish did some profound music. If you go to Cambridge, England... You can see there in Cambridge something called the Corpus Clock. I don't know if you've heard of this. It was installed 10 years ago. A man named John Taylor was its maker. He wanted to create a new and different way of showing time, and so he, he built the Corpus Clock, and the, the design pays tribute to a particular clockmaker from the 1700s. It's John Taylor's tribute to this man's particular design. It was his inspiration. The Corpus Clock is a mechanical clock. It's out in public view, but there's no hour or minute or second hands on the face of the clock as we always see on a mechanical clock. Instead, you've got slots of light. Those slots of light keep the hour and the minute, and you've got this pulse of light running around the, the outer dial each second, a pulse of light. And there's this ticking pendulum. It's a mechanical clock, and so there's a, there's, there's a ticking pendulum at the bottom of it. But it's interesting because the pendulum will speed up, slow down, and sometimes stop, but it returns to the correct timekeeping every five minutes. And in this, John Taylor wanted to show that time is constant, but our experience of its speed is, is relative. Atop the corpus clock, what makes it interesting, not just for those details, but atop is really the tribute to the old uh, clock from the 18th century. Because what's atop it is this hideous-looking mechanical grasshopper. It's, it's not your friendly neighborhood Jiminy Cricket variety. The, grasshop, uh, uh, the grasshopper, is, it's more like a locust atop the, the corpus clock. It looks like it would want to eat all of Cambridge if it, if it got the opportunity. It's, it's made very fierce looking. But he's, he's very much part of the mechanism. This ugly thing atop it, rhythmically keeping the outer dial moving, and, and the grasshopper slash locust is there to symbolize the eating of every minute. I learned of this clock in a book I'm reading where the author tells of taking a picture of his boys when they visited Cambridge. His boys were five and three years old at the time, and they're standing under this corpus clock, and, 
And this was about nine years ago. And so nine years on, when he looks at that picture, it's you know, so easy to picture our, our, that our kids are going to be little uh, a long time. But now he looks at that picture and he looks at his boys who are getting older and, and growing up. And eventually he knows they're going to grow up away from him and go out on their own. And he, he says, I, I look at that clock and my boy's standing under it and I feel the appetite of time. It's insatiable. Time is devouring everything we love. Maybe you'd like me to change the subject. I'm Debbie Downing, your Christmas time, Christmas Sunday. I don't want to be reminded that life is short. To quote the comic Mario Joyner, life is the longest thing you will ever possibly do. <laughs> That's pretty, it's got a point. But time is in view when we're told that Jesus is the eternal Father. Time is in view. It means he's the giver and the keeper of eternal life. There's a, there's a great description of eternal life. It comes from a, a scholar named Richard Balkum. He says eternal life is simply, simple to say, life beyond the reach of death. If you could compress eternity into a pocketable definition, description, you might not do any better than that. Eternal life is life beyond the reach of death. I've heard it said that uh, to have joy, we have to put our happiness beyond the reach of our enemies. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But our main enemy is death, capital D, death. Our last enemy, our main and last enemy for all of us is capital D, death. And because death is an enemy, this means it's an intrusion on God's good creation. It wasn't part of the original design. And it necessitates the incarnation of God and the Lord Jesus in order to save creation. Death enjoys telling us our time will end. And for now, time is devouring everything we love, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour. And on and on it goes. And yes, we can find this very depressing. And some are trying to do something about it through AI, artificial intelligence. I mentioned to you a few sermons ago the, the movement there of using technology to find some way to lengthen our lives, to cheat death, and maybe to even defeat it. There are some people in that movement who are so optimistic that we're going to be able to live well over 100 years through, through technology giving us uh, uh, more, 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 more life, keeping death away. But faith, faith with a cross at the center of it, faith puts our hope beyond the reach of our capital E enemy, which is capital D, death. And the, re the reason faith does this is because in faith we are drawn in to the eternal Father, which is a name, a title for Jesus, it means he transcends time as the giver and the keeper of eternal life. Time is his instrument. It's subject to him. Now, there was a time stamp on his incarnation. He came to earth in the first century. You've read about, that. You've read about this in Luke chapter 3 during the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Herod uh, was the tetrarch and Pontius Pilate was the governor of, of uh, Judea. And Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. 
He lived 33 years, and death hung over his time here too, as it does for us. But he being the eternal father means death does not hang over his time now. And it never really did in any defeatist way because death would retreat from his tomb. It would have to. Death hung over his life for a time, for his lifetime on earth, but not beyond. His life was beyond the reach of death. And, and when Scripture says that our lives are hidden with Christ, are, are hidden with God in Christ, that's what that's conveying. It's the benefit of knowing the eternal Father whose life is beyond the reach of death and our lives entrusted to him get in on the same experience. And this is really good. Why is this really good? I know you may think of eternity as kind of scary because it's not here. <laughs> it's not everything that's familiar. It's not here and now. Living here and now is all we know and experience. Yes, heaven is certainly preferable to hell. But we can default think of earth as preferable to heaven because earth is all we know. But when we think about all that we know of the experience of life here and now, when we think this out, when we think about life even at its best, when everything is going well, when so much is enjoyable and good and, and fine, don't we know that even when we're enjoying something, have you ever had the experience of drinking it all in and even then the knowledge catches up to you or maybe it catches you off guard. This won't last. I might not even appreciate fully in the moment what I'm enjoying or I might even lose interest. Nobody brings this out better than Mark Buchanan in one of his books. He says, C.S. Lewis called the earth the Shadowlands. There's genius in that. Earth is the land where even the most exquisite beauty and sheerest joy has strands of dark lying across it, the hint of eclipse, our most robust joys haunted with sorrow. He says, I've stood atop a peak in central British Columbia, looking down at granite and pine, the earth stretching away in dizzying panoramic wildness. The wind gripped my body like an angel wrestling me. And I felt both huge and small, conquered and conquering, afraid and undaunted. And yet, even immersed in such exhilaration, I felt the flattening, hollow power of boredom. I've been at reunions with people I love and long to see. And in the midst of a gale of laughter sweeping through the room, I felt a shiver of loneliness twine down my bones. I've swum among the shoals of water-sculpted rock and schools of bright darting fish, my body ethereally light in the warm tropical surge of current, and all the while a part of me wished I were somewhere else. Why? Why is it that even while enjoying a paradise of earthly delights, we sometimes cannot conceal a yawn of apathy, a pang of disappointment, a nagging sense that something's missing? We're rich and weary both longing for something else. We're heaven bent, all crooked until the light of forever straightens us up. Does that ring true to you? It does to me. It's why I included it in my sermon. Again, I know we think of eternity and I think, you know, or you think, we all think maybe at points, I, you know, I don't know if I want that. It's not here and now. It's not the... 
it's not what I know and, and familiar with and, and feel in, in somewhat in control of. But don't we long for the end of boredom? Don't we long to stand and take in beauty and our legs don't get tired? Don't we long to, to, to hear the, 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 the most beautiful sounds you could, you could ever imagine and, and we wouldn't lose interest or our mind trail off somewhere else? I could go on and on on these lines, but I think we do long for that. Don't we want an end to wanting to be somewhere else when we know we should be all in where we are? I think we do, and yet we can't always pull that off, and we know it. Eternity is where this gets pulled off. Finally, it is not floating on clouds playing harps. It is life as life was intended to be lived by human beings made in the image and likeness of God. And what eternity, the, the, the beauty of eternity, is it's time cleared of death hanging over it. It's no longer the shadowlands. That's eternal father. And now we move to Prince of Peace. If eternal father is in relation to time, which is a problem for us, as I've tried to say, Prince of Peace is in relation to evil, the other great problem for us because death also inhabits evil. Death weaponizes evil. Evil robs us of our peace. What peace is, is harmony. It's coordinate, it's coordinate, it's easy for me to say, coordination between um, cause and effect between, between um, form and design. It's an alignment. It's things in stride together in sync. This is peace. Peace is not bone-on-bone bone friction. There's no conflict anymore where there's peace. Now, a truce is a kind of peace, but not peace proper because you still have animosity in a truce. Truce is the peace of you stay on your side and I'll stay on mine, but we won't really reconcile. We'll just agree to no longer fight. Evil is a problem for us, not just because of evil's power to hurt us, others doing their worst against us. Why, Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. He taught us to pray that because he can deliver that. But evil is also a problem for us because evil appeals to us. Didn't we learn this in Romans 7? Evil appeals to us. This is why Jesus is called Prince of Peace here rather than maybe just Peacemaker. Prince of Peace. He does make peace, but a prince is someone you submit to. That's the point. Our personal evil keeps us unsubmissive to him. That he's called Prince of Peace means he could demand our submission. He's, he's, he's in that role. We owe it to him, our submission, because of our guilt. But he makes peace with us and then cultivates our submission to him by loving us and by clearing our guilt. It's, it's a completely different way than we often go about it. You notice how often when we have a conflict with someone, there's been this friction and offenses between us, we're wounded. You notice how often we'll just try to avoid them? It becomes our, our go-to strategy. And in this, we'll tell ourselves, well, I'm trying to keep the peace. 
A lot of you about to get some practice this week visiting extended families. But acting like nothing is off between us to keep from getting sideways any further, that's a truce at best. It's not peace. You're not keeping peace. Peace necessitates reconciliation. And so Prince of Peace, the Lord makes peace, authentic peace, with His enemies, us. We who've done Him wrong by making us His friends, by loving us, and in fact overwhelming us with His grace toward us. He wins our surrender to Him. He cultivates our submission as opposed to demanding it from us, which He could. Look, it's really true. If you come to understand salvation in the right light from the right angle, that what we have of God, that what we have from God, there's there's nothing we contributed to that except our sin. We got lost. And he came for us and found us and turned us to himself. If, If you understand salvation this way, that what we have with God and of God through the Son is all of grace, then there is nothing he cannot ask of us. Nothing. This is why grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. You know, Titus, it's not because we have to somehow get this uh, idea of grace, of, well, how does grace morally train me? It's because the reality of grace is a, re- is a recognition that I'm a recipient and always a recipient. This is why grace teaches me to say no to what... God doesn't want for me and purposes for me because I realize in receiving grace, there is nothing he cannot ask of me if it's all of grace. You know, I I never thought about this until this week, which you ought to be really scared of when a preacher says that. But (laughs) there's a story Jesus told about himself. And I think the story, though I, I'd never thought about it, put this together until this week, but the story Jesus told about himself, it merges eternal father and prince of peace together. And, and on this particular point, I, I think it's, it's beautiful that this happens to be his most familiar story. It's a story of a father who's put in the position, the position no father wants to be in, no mother for that matter. The position of having to try and make peace with both of his sons. Both of his sons wrong him in this familiar story. One son wrongs him by his unrighteousness, his direct evil against his father. He's called a prodigal son. Prodigal means reckless. The other son is self-righteous and in that blind to the resentment evil that he harbors toward his father for being the way he is. His father is far more gracious than he would ever want his father to be. But the father in the story, though he could demand of his sons, he does not demand their submission. Ultimatums are not his way. Both sons upset him. Both sons grieve him. In some sense, both sons embarrass him. And while he doesn't get submission from the self-righteous son, he doesn't. The self-righteous son will not be one to who the father is and how the father loves. The self-righteous son won't have it. But the prodigal 
downwind of himself for the first time, painfully aware now of his personal evil and his wrongs against his father in particular, this son who wasted time and wasted fortune. He's guilty and he knows it. But his dad spent time watching for him. And the clear implication of the story is that Jesus is the dad. The dad is Jesus in the story. And the dad spent time watching for this prodigal to come back, not because he missed him so much, but because he wanted to spare him. This is the background that a lot of us don't realize is there. It's not in the text, but it's in the culture. The background of the story is that there was a cultural ritual that awaited this young man back in town if he dared to return. It's a shame-honor culture. And so you don't get away in that culture with shaming your family. And that's what the, the young man did. He takes his inheritance and he goes off and he, and he drags his, his family name through the mud. And in that culture, there was a ritual designed to shame this young man and shun him where they would come out and they would bring burned corn and, and burned nuts and they would have it in a jar and they would break it in front of this this young man, and they would say, you are cut off from your people. And the reason the father is watching for the son and the reason the father runs out in the story to the son, something Middle Eastern men wearing long robes do not do, it's humiliating to them to have to pick up their robe, expose their legs, and run. And the reason he runs and shames himself is to beat the townspeople out to his boy. They're going to do their duty as upstanding people to shame this kid and getting to him first he dresses him it's all very intentional action he adorns him with with the the seal and the signet of the family this son guilty of so much evil in action and in heart he gets dressed and adorned in such a way that it says to the rest of the community this one will not be shamed i've made peace the Father in that story is clearly Jesus. It's the action of the eternal Father. The peacemaker in that story is clearly Jesus. It's princely action. The Prince of Peace who reconciles. He's both. Peacemaking, as Jesus does it, is, it's aimed at his rule over us, but he, he gets his rule over us by reconciling us to himself. If our salvation is all of grace, we will submit to our Savior. Because if it's all of grace, there's nothing He cannot ask of us. I defer to Him. The better design and purposes for my life than I come up with on my own, than, than going along with the crowd. A prince is someone you submit to, but a prince of peace who's going to move heaven and earth to, to, to make it possible for you to, to know him, Prince of Peace is someone I want to submit to, even as I find more evil in myself in doing so. That's because I'm finding more good in him. Why is it in the biographies of many of the great saints through history on up to now, you, you, these people that we consider the purest people in their biographies talk about how impure they are in their motives how come the people that we consider the, the all-time greats in humility claim to have the most monstrous pride? How come at the end of his life, the end of his life, the Apostle Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, not I was, I am. 
He wasn't messing with tents. He's conveying the reason why people who honestly love and obey the Lord Jesus make these kind of confessions with the kind of honesty they do is due to peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's safe to admit that I'm not where I should be, but I'm on my way there. That I'm, I haven't arrived, but I know the direction. I've been turned, and I keep turning. Repentance becomes a way of life. Look again at it, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace. It's repeated. There will be no end. What is his government? We talked about it last week. It's his responsibility for us. What is peace? It's his pledge to us of himself because we've been reconciled. And it's a pledge that's not just good for here and now, but it's good for beyond time as we know it, to the perfection of time. And it's good for, it's out of the reach of what evil can, can do. All of this for we whose days are a blip in history and full of evil of our own crafting. All of this and more. Merry Christmas. Christmas brings us back to this reality every year. Good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people, because to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Not just any child, and not just any son, but one who we know as wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that we can call upon you because of the uh, mercies of your Son, because you spared us the shame that we have rightly incurred in your presence. You've cleared our guilt, and you clear our shame as well as you minister to us day by day. Time munches away at everything we love, everything we have, but you are over time. And you will perfect time. And we await eagerly that day, not to be escapists, but because you've made us interested in completion. You've made us interested in what it is you're doing in the world. That the church is not just a, a building on a street corner where people arrive and have a service and go out into the more important things of the week. The church, building your church is your work in the world. And you've brought us in on that. And we're grateful. Lord, we thank you for uh, this text. We thank you for this season. We thank you for all that's uh, here for us to consider and look at in a passage like this one. Lord, bring us back to this place tomorrow night to worship you again as a collective group of people who have a lot to thank you for and a lot to praise you for, even if this has been a hard year. We come to prize Jesus most of all sometimes in the things we suffer. And so we thank you even for that because of what it results in and how it builds us and how we see more of you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.